So for anybody that doesn't know, we're just walking through Genesis right now, passage by passage, coming through the book of Genesis, and we land today in chapter 9, verse 18, to the end of the chapter, verse 29. So this is where we're going to be. Let's pray, and we'll begin to move in that direction, okay? Pray with me. Father, thank You for Your Word. Thank You for a, a moment, Lord, to pause and to meditate on what You say to us in Your Word. And God, it's before You, it's in Your presence, Lord, that I preach and teach these words, God. And it's before You, it's in Your presence, God, that everyone under the hearing of it hears Your words. And so, God, we come before You, fear and trembling, God. We want to hear from You. We want to know what You say to us, Lord, what You have to say to us. So, God, please speak. God, we want to come with hearts that say, whatever You command us, we'll do, and wherever You send us, we'll go. What do you say to us, Lord? God, I pray that you'd help me now to teach your word and the ability that you supply. And I pray, God, that you help every person here to lean in and to incline, to incline their ear, not to the words of a man, but to your word. Thank you, Lord, for your help in this time. In Jesus' name, Amen. Amen. All right. So we're about to read Genesis nine eighteen through twenty nine. Uh, before we do that, let me just say a few things about it. So we're at the end. If you remember that word, that that word toledot that we've said a few times, it breaks up Genesis into different sections. A, a section would be a toledot here. We're at the end of that flood. We're at the end of that section in Genesis from 6-9 to the end of chapter 9 that speaks about the flood, that speaks about Noah. And today we're capping that off at the very end of it, okay? Now I actually do want to read, before we read the whole thing, look at verse uh, 28 and 29 with me. Let's kind of go ahead for a second. And Noah lived after the flood 350 years. So all the days of Noah were 950 years and he died. So I want you to think about it. We've just, we've just gone through what the Bible said about the flood and what went down there. And now we've got 350 years that Noah lives after the flood. And we're about to get a glimpse into his life. So out of 350 years that he remains on the earth, what glimpse would the Bible give us? What glimpse of Noah's life would God want us to walk away with to end this section of Genesis about the story of Noah? What glimpse would we get? Surely it would be like a, a heroic event in the life of Noah, right? Or be some kind of, uh, some kind of feat that he accomplished, right? It would be something like that. And yet what we're going to see as we read it, that we see Noah getting drunk and cursing his grandson. And we think, why? Why is this the way... It ends. And I want you to think like that. Why? And we'll answer that later. Before we answer that, we're going to walk through, read it, get the plain sense of what's going on here. But, but I want you to be asking the question the whole time. Why? 350 years, Noah just endured the flood. He was the one that found grace in his sight. Why this glimpse? 
Why drunken Noah cursing his grandson? Why? Why is this happening? So let's read it, and then we'll we'll walk right into the plain sense of it, okay? Verse 18, read it with me. Now the sons of Noah who went out of the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the whole earth was populated. And Noah began to be a farmer, and he planted a vineyard. Then he drank of the wine and was drunk, and became uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. But Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both of their shoulders, and went backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned away, and they did not see their father's nakedness. So Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his younger son had done to him. Then he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants, he shall be to his brethren. And he said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and may Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge the... Enlarge Japheth, and may he dwell in the tents of Shem, and may Canaan be his servant. And Noah lived after the flood 350 years. So all the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. He died. Alright, so let's just talk through the plain sense of what's happening right here. we got verse 18 and 19. We see the repopulation of the world. You see that? In verse 18 and 19, we've got the repopulation of the world through Noah and through his three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And the whole earth is repopulated here. Okay, This is, this is going to be further explained when we get into Genesis chapter 10 of the repopulation of the earth and what this looked like. What we have in Genesis chapter 10 is the genealogy of all three of these sons. Okay, Noah's three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. We get a genealogy in chapter 10. Of all three of these sons. And yet, that genealogy in chapter 10 is very unique. And the way it's unique is that what you're used to seeing is a man begot a man begot a man and just single, a single person each time throughout the genealogy being traced. But in this genealogy in chapter 10, we're going to see the three sons, those three lines traced out. But the way each one of them end is the peoples and the languages and the nations that came from these men. A lot of people call Genesis chapter 10 the table of nations because there we see the earth being repopulated. I want to mention a few things, okay? So as we're thinking about the plain sense of 18 and 9, verse 18 and 19, through Noah's son, the whole earth being repopulated, I want to glance at chapter 10 just so you'll be familiar with a few things there, okay? So chapter 10, verse 1 through 5, what we get in that chapter, in fact, read verse 2 with me. The sons of Japheth were, and it goes on. And we get this lineage traced out from verses 1 through 5 of the sons of Japheth. Now I want to zone in on verse 5. Look at it. From these, the coastland peoples of the Gentiles were separated into their, separated into their lands. Everyone according to his language, according to their families, into their nations. Okay? The way it says it in the ESV is the peoples, the peoples of the Gentiles here, the peoples spread in their lands. 
Okay, so th- what we're seeing here is this is this is the picture of the uh, when you think of Japheth and his lineage being spread out. What's supposed to be hitting our mind here is this is the nations, this is the Gentiles when they would have received these words, the people of Israel coming out of Egypt, and they read that right there. They would have thought these are the people that we call the Gentiles, the nations, the people spread abroad throughout the earth. Okay, and so I want you to think about this. The same word in the ESV is translated peoples. Or, or, or here is translated Gentiles. Gentiles. This is the same word that's used by Isaiah when Isaiah speaks about the nations and the Gentiles and the peoples that, that Christ is coming for them. He'll be a servant not only to the Jews but to the Gentiles. This is the same kind of idea here. Okay, so when you think of Japheth, I want to encourage you to think about the nations as a representation to us. We'll see this more in a minute of the nations or the, the Gentiles. Now, this will be more significant to you. In just a little bit, okay? So let that sit there for a minute. Next, I want you to think about the genealogy of Ham. Look at verse 6 through 20. Verse 6 through 20 gives us the genealogy of that other son of Noah named Ham. Now I want you to notice some of the, some of the details that are given about one of Ham's son named Canaan. It mentions Ham's sons, and one of his sons' names is Canaan. And it gives you some extra detail about Canaan. So look at it right here in verse 15. Canaan begot Sidon, his firstborn, and Heth, the Jebusite, the Amorite, the Girgashite, the Hivite, the Archite, and the Sinite, and the Arvadite, and the Zimmerite, and the Hamathite. Afterward, the families of the Canaanites were dispersed. And so what you're seeing here is you just got a who's who of, of the future Israel's enemies when they come into the land of Canaan. Did you hear that? So what we know out of the lineage of Ham that's there in Genesis 10... Through Canaan, one of Ham's son, is coming those enemies of Israel that you're going to read about as you keep reading through the Bible. As Israel's pulled out of Egypt and they go to fight their enemies. That was the who's who of who they are. They're coming through the line of Canaan. I also want you to notice this in verse 19. And the border of the Canaanites, and the border of the Canaanites, and what you get from there to verse 20, is the borders of their land. Why would he tell us that? Why would he tell us, here's these Canaanites, which by the way, we know as we've read through the Bible, are going to be those enemies of Israel in the future. And then it tells us the borders that are there, the borders of these people. I wonder why. I wonder why. Now, not all of Ham, but, so think about it with me, not all of Ham, you just see the genealogy in chapter 10, but part of Ham's lineage, which is Canaan, is it's Israel's enemies in the future, and, and it's the land, it's that thing that, that we hear called the promised land that Israel's going to come in and take over. Now, that's going to be more significant to you in a little bit, okay? So let it sit. Let that idea sit there. All right, in verse 21, verse 21 to 31, we get the genealogy of Shem, okay? The genealogy of Shem. Now, I want you to notice an emphasis. Look at verse 21. And children were born also to Shem, the father of all the children of Eber, the brother of Japheth the elder. Now, right there, it just said the, the father of all the children of Eber. Okay, now it puts a highlight on this man named Eber, which if you look at the genealogy, he doesn't come till later down the line, and yet he's put right there at the front, at the front, as an emphasis on this man whose name is Eber. I wonder why. 
wonder why he does this. This word, this is, if you look up, where do we get the word Hebrew from? When we look at the people of God, the Israelites, who are later known as Jews, where do we get the word Hebrew? They are called Hebrews. Abraham is called a Hebrew in Genesis 14. Where does this come from? And it comes from this word right here. And so what we know is through Shem, we're getting the genealogy of the Hebrews. Through Shem, we're getting the genealogy of the people of God, the Israelites, who will later be called the Jews. This is the genealogy of Shem. And that's going to that's gonna mean more to you in just a little while. Okay? So let that sit. That's going to mean more. It's going to be more significant to you in just a little while. So, Genesis chapter 9, verse 18 and 19. It tells us that the whole, the whole earth is repopulated through Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And Genesis 10 lets us in on, this is talking about the nations, the Gentiles, the nations, the Hebrews, the Israelites, that lineage that's coming through Shem. And even, it even highlights those Canaanites that are going to dwell in the promised land where those Israelites are going to come in and take over. This is what gets highlighted for us in Genesis chapter 10, okay? But, but we know from 18 and 19 that through these three men, the whole earth is populated. You with me there? Now this is a total side note. A total side note here. But I want to encourage you to catch the vision of that. Did you know that vast multitudes of people can come from just a few? Did you know that? Did you know that could happen? I remember one time. I read Genesis 9, verse 18 and 19. And what I had on my mind just, just so happened. Maybe it was just a season of my life. I have on my mind this idea of make disciples. Make disciples. Like we should all have on our mind. Because the Lord commands us of that. And I read this verse that from these three men, the whole earth is repopulated. And I said, oh God, give me three faithful men. Give me three faithful men. So I want to encourage you to catch the vision of that. That through a very, very few, God can, ha- can affect vast multitudes. Jesus poured His life into 12 men. Acts 17 says they turn the world upside down. And so how does this affect your child rearing? Or how does this affect your disciple making? How does it affect these things? That's a total side note. But what we know from those first two verses in Genesis chapter 9, verse 18 and 19, we know that through these three men, the whole earth is repopulated. Then you get to verse 20 and 21 and just, just think about it with me. Just kind of glance at it and think about it with me. What we see there is literally Noah gets, he gets what we would call passed out drunk. He does. He gets passed out drunk. And he ends up shaming himself as his clothes come off. He's naked in his tent. We get to verse 22 and we're going to see the sin of Ham. The way Ham, his son, reacts to Noah's drunkenness and him being passed out there. The way Ham uh, responds to it is going to be a sinful action here. Okay, And we know it's sinful because Noah's response to Ham's actions was a curse. Okay, So we see there that he didn't help his dad. He didn't help his dad. He just went and told somebody about what was going on. Alright, that's verse 22. Verse 23, we see the virtue of Sham and Japheth. Just kind of glance at it with me. We see the virtue of Sham and Japheth. We see them actually helping their father, moving in, helping their father, and they end up receiving a blessing. Verse 24 through 27, Noah's going to rise up in response and he's going to deliver cursings and blessings out to his sons here, okay? Now, now these words that Noah delivers, this, this blessing and this cursing, these words have far, uh, uh, far-reaching effects that go beyond just the immediate sons. You understand that? 
His words have far-reaching effect that go beyond just the immediate sun. These, these words are what I like to call Noah's prophetic words that reach into the future and affect us all. These words in verse 24 through 27, when he rises up and blesses and curses, these are Noah's prophetic words that reach into the future and they affect us all. Now you might say, what was prophetic about it? it, it just, he just looks ticked off to me. He just looks mad. So what's prophetic about this? And we'll explain that further. We'll look at that further in just a little while. Okay, so let that sit. You've got a lot of things sitting. You holding them all? Okay, so let that sit. Then we get to verse 28-29 and we see Noah dies. That's the end of the Toledoth. That's the end of the flood section. The end of the section in Genesis that's about Noah. He dies. So the plain sense of this passage is kind of bizarre, right? It's kind of bizarre. You're thinking, why did it end this way? Why did it have to end like this? And, and before, and before, and we're going to look at the purpose of that. Remember, I want you to be asking the whole time, why? Why this story that seems bizarre in so many ways? Why? I want that to sit on you. But before we do that, I want to talk to you about five minor lessons that are there, okay? So before we get into the purpose, the main point of that passage, I want to talk to you quickly about five minor lessons that are to be found in it. Now, when I say minor, I do not mean they're all unimportant. I just mean it's not the main point of the passage. Okay, I want you to distinguish between that. There's things as we come down through this passage that we need to see and highlight and it causes us to think about different things. But this is not the main point of the passage. So when I say five minor things that we need to learn here, that's what I'm getting at is, is this is not necessarily the main point. But let's walk through these, okay? Number one is this. In this story, we learn of the depths of our sin. How deep our sinfulness, wickedness Evil, how deep it really goes. We learn about the depths of our sin. We see here that the flood that Noah went through with his family did not eradicate sin. It was never intended to eradicate sin. Only the blood of Jesus can do that. So you should think as you read this, as you read this passage, okay? How can Noah sin after he had been so vividly exposed to the wrath of God being poured out? I mean, Noah saw the wrath of God. He saw the horrific effects of sin and he saw the wrath of God poured out more than anybody in the room. How could he, after seeing that and having such knowledge of the wrath of God, how could he still turn in sin knowing those things? And the answer to that helps us to see how deep our sinfulness really goes. Did, did the knowledge of the horrific effects of sin, did the knowledge of the wrath of God that Noah had better than any of us, did that keep him from sinning? No. Why? Why didn't it keep him from sinning? Because his problem and our problem is not just a knowledge problem. It's not an ignorance problem. It's an evil heart problem. It's deep. It's very, very deep. Our sin runs deep. So what we learn from that is that, our, that man's sin problem is deeper than, than any amount of knowledge can fix. Man's sin problem is deeper than any amount of knowledge can fix. Man's problem is not ignorance. It's a wicked heart. Okay, It's not that man doesn't know any better. He's just a victim that doesn't know any better. And if he just knew better, he wouldn't do that. No, the problem is our heart is wicked. And even though we know better, we still sin against this God. Our sin problem is deep. And you see it. In the life of Noah here. Now this is essential to you understanding the gospel. 
This is a big deal to you understanding the Gospel. Because if ignorance is the problem, if the problem is humans just don't understand, they just don't get it, they just need knowledge of God's wrath, if they could only see God, if that was really the problem, then all you need is knowledge. But if the problem is deeper than that, and it's a wicked heart, then what you need is a sovereign Savior named Jesus who died for your sins. And that's what this reveals to us. So here we see the depth of our sin even the most vivid, vivid knowledge of God's wrath cannot fix our sin problem. Noah had it, but it didn't fix it. Second thing here, second lesson. Beware of drunkenness. Beware of drunkenness. As we see Noah falling into drunkenness here. Got a question. Do you feel about that sin... I want to challenge you with this. Do you feel about that sin the same way God feels about that sin? Do you feel towards drunkenness the same way God feels towards drunkenness? Are you moving in that direction? And I'm afraid sometimes that, that people, maybe even in the room, get caught up in this culture and in the name of being cool, we don't feel the same way toward the sin of drunkenness as maybe we do toward other sins. So I want you to listen to some of the warnings of the Bible. I'm just, re- I'm just going to read them to you. In Proverbs chapter 20, verse 1, listen to the warnings found in God's Word. Wine is a mocker. Strong drink is a brawler. And whoever is led astray by it is not wise. Did you hear the warning? Listen to chapter 23. Proverbs 23. Verse 29. Listen to this description. Who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has contentions? Who has complaints? Who has wounds without cause? Who has redness of eyes? Those who linger long at the wine. Those who go in search of mixed wine. Do not, listen to the warning here, do not look on the wine when it is red and when it sparkles in the cup. When it swirls around smoothly, at last it bites like a serpent and stings like a viper. Your eyes will see strange things. Your heart will utter perverse things. Yes, you will be like one who lies down in the midst of the sea. Or like one who lies at the top of the mast saying, They have struck me, but I was not hurt. They have beaten me, but I did not feel it. When shall I wake that I might seek another drink? You hear the description there? Doesn't that sound modern day? And I want to encourage you to feel the warning of this sin that Noah walks into right here. Galatians chapter 5, verse 21. In this list of sins, it has things about sexual immorality or murder. Is a sin called drunkenness? It says the word, Galatians 5, 21. Drunkenness. And of those who practice such things, they will not inherit the kingdom of God. Is this serious or is it not? How serious is the sin of drunkenness? How do you feel toward this sin? Ephesians 5.18, it says, Be filled with the Spirit. Do not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. A direct command from the living God. Do you feel rightly about this sin? Test your heart on that. Do you feel rightly about this sin? I'm scared that oftentimes we have been desensitized to this sin by the movies we watch, by the TV, th- the TV shows or whatever that we watch that take this thing that leads people to hell and instead of seeing it as sin, we get desensitized. It's just a joke in our eyes. What are your children? I was convicted by this myself in my own life. What are your children learning through the things you put before their eyes about drunkenness? That it's a funny joke to laugh at or it's a sin that will drag you to hell? 
What are they learning about it? And so I encourage you to take this sin very seriously. But it's not the main point of the passage, right? If you read the verse right there, it never even explicitly says. We know it's explicitly sin. Drunkenness is sin from the rest of the Bible. But it never even explicitly uh, condemns it in this verse because it's not the main point. It's not the main point here, okay? Well, let's go down to another thing. Number three. Beware of underestimating the power and the deceitfulness of sin. Beware of underestimating the power and the deceitfulness of sin. Think about it. How could Noah, a righteous man, a preacher of righteousness who walked with God for several hundred years, how could he fall into this sin? How could he do that? And I want to encourage you through that thought not to underestimate the power and the deceitfulness of sin in your own life. Go, listen to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Listen to this. Verse 11 now, all these things happen to them as examples. And if you go read that section of Scripture, you've got all these Old Testament examples of sin. And he says, all these things happen to them as examples, and they were written, why were they written? For our admonition upon whom the ends of the ages have come. We're supposed to see things like this. It's not the main point of the passage. But we see Noah, after years of walking with God, fall deep into this sin. And, and we should be warned by that. And this is the reason the next verse in verse 12 says, Therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Do you need to hear that? Let him who thinks he stand. Is there something in your life you feel like I stand to that? Maybe you heard somebody else fell, in, fell into this sin. Instead of crying out to God, God deliver me and keep me and preserve me. That you felt like you would never come into something like that. I ask you that. Let him, I want to put that before you. Let him who thinks he stands take heed. Take heed unless he fall. So don't underestimate the power of sin. Don't overestimate yourself. Don't overestimate yourself. And don't let your guard down. I like, I like this quote. Listen to this quote. I believe this was from Ken Hughes. He says, Past success does not provide the power for future victory. Believe that? Here's a man who walked with God and failed. Past, your past success does not provide the power for future victory. Well, what does? Jesus, the great high priest, seated on high, intercede on your behalf. Therefore, what do you need to do? Pray, pray, pray. Call out to the living God. A good prayer I put before you. Psalm 71, verse 17 and 18. Oh God, I've sought you from my youth. And to this day, I declare your wondrous works. Now, God, also, when I'm old and gray-headed, do not forsake me until I declare your strength to this generation and your power to everyone who is to come. So he's saying, keep me, O oh God, keep me, O oh God, even to when I'm old and gray-headed, that you would keep me, O oh God. <clears throat> Number four. Beware of the sin of Ham. Beware of the sin of Ham. Look, look in Genesis 9, verse 22. What did he do? What was the problem? Look at verse 22. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father, and told his two brothers outside. So he sees his father at the backside of this sin that he walks in, and he immediately goes 
and tells his two brothers. So what was his sin? And I would say the sin here is not in seeing. The sin is not that they, he saw it. It's that he blabbed his mouth about it right after instead of helping in love, helping his father. He blabs his mouth about it instead. He did not act in love to cover his father's shame like his two brothers did. He didn't do that. He didn't move in love to cover his shame, but he went and told others his father's sin. Maybe he did it with a snicker. Maybe he did it with an evil heart, evil intent. But the Bible says fools mock at sin. So let me put a question. With the sin of Ham before you, going and speaking about the sin of his father to others instead of helping his father. Let me ask you a question. Let me ask you this question. Do you spend more time talking about other people's sin or helping people in their sin? Do you spend more time talking about other people's sin or helping them in their sin. Beware of this. The temptation to talk and not help is as old as ham. It's an old sin. Proverbs 11.13 says this. Whoever goes about. Think about it. Whoever goes about slandering. Reveals secrets. But he who is trustworthy in spirit. Keeps a thing covered. Beware of the sin of ham. Right? But again. This is not the main point of the passage. In fact, the only reason, we, we don't even get his sin very clearly explained about exactly what he did wrong. It's not very, very just, just detailed, clearly explained, but we know it's wrong because of the curse. So this is not, why, why does he do it that way? Because this is not the main point of the passage. Num number five, last one's this. Follow the example, follow the example of Japheth and Sham. What did they do? Look at verse 23. Follow the example of Japheth and Sham. But Sham and Japheth took a garment, laid it on their shoulders. Listen, listen to the extremities that they're going to to love their father and to cover his shame. Listen to it. But Sham and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and went backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned away and they did not see their father's Nakedness. Now this is a great illustration, I think, of that Bible verse that says, Love covers a multitude of sins. Love covers a multitude of sins. Just like God, remember Adam sinned and God covered him in Genesis 3.21 as He covered him with the, 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 the shame and the nakedness and He covered him with those animal skins. In the same way you see these brothers going in and covering the shame of their father. Or the same way Christ does toward us, alright, right? Christ takes our sin onto Himself and He is crucified for it. And He covers us in robes of righteousness. Romans chapter 4 says this, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. So let us follow in this example. This example of Christ, the example of God, the example of Sham and Japheth. Listen to 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 8. It says, Above all things, have fervent love for one another. For love will cover a multitude of sin. Have fervent love for one another. For love will cover a multitude of sin. Now let me put a quick clarifier here. I want to give this clarifier from James chapter 5. Listen. This does not mean that we see each other's sin and we just ignore it. Okay? That'd be no different than seeing somebody coming up behind your friend with a knife about to stab them and you just turn around and look the other way. It's no different. Sin will kill us. Sin will, will come against us and take us over. You don't ignore it in your brother and sister's life. That's not what it means. Listen to James 5.19. Brethren, 
If anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone turns him back, imagine what that looked like, this process of turning them back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save a soul from death and what? Cover a multitude of sins. Now earlier it says love covers a multitude of sins. And right there, this picture, what covers a multitude of sins? This picture of someone going after and bringing back their brother, their sister, that's fallen into sin. So, so the picture is not that we ignore the sin like Ham did and go talk about it to others. The picture is that in love, we move toward them and help and we want to cover that shame. We want to help them in their sin. But again, again, I'll say this. It's not the main point. And I just want to keep making that because I want that question to be in your head. Why is this story really here? Because these things are not the main point. I mean, right there, it never even very clearly uh, uh, tells us uh, you know, why what Shem and Japheth did was virtuous. It never even very clearly tells us that because this is not the main point of this passage. So, so, so somebody's saying, well, well what in the, would you get to the main point? What's the main point then? Okay? And I want to talk to you about the main point of this passage. And I want you to lean in, incline your ear, and grab hold of what the main point of this passage is, okay? The main point of this snapshot in Noah's life, to end the flood story, the main point is to highlight those prophetic words that reach into the future and affect us all. Verse 24 through 27. Let's read them again. The point of this story, main point is to highlight. These are, I'm saying these are prophetic words that reach into the future and affect us all. Let's read them. So Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his younger son had done to him. Then he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants he shall be to his brethren. And he said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and may Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth, and may he dwell in the tents of Sham, and may Canaan be his servant. So I'm saying these prophetic words that reach in the future, it's the main point of this passage. Okay, So before we dig in to the prophetic meaning of these words, before we dig into that, I need to answer a question that you might have. The question may be this. How do we know that these words are prophetic words that reach into the future? Why do I keep saying that? How do we know that that's what these words are? And so let me tell you a few things. Number one, the interesting details that are found here. The interesting details that are in this passage, they can't be answered. The, the, the reason for, I'm going to show you these interesting details, but the reasons that these interesting details are there cannot be answered unless you look into the future by continuing to read through the Bible and see that it's being fulfilled somewhere, thus making the words prophetic in nature. You see what I'm saying? The interesting details, I'm about to show them to you. They can't be explained in the passage unless you look into the future and see them fulfilled. Therefore, these words are prophetic in nature. Here's the interesting details I'm talking about. One is the emphasis on Canaan. The emphasis on Canaan, which is the son. His, his sons, Noah's sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And one of his sons, Ham, has a son named Canaan. Why is he so emphasized here? And this literally happened to me. Look at verse 18. Literally, you imagine me reading this passage. I, don't, I didn't know the main point. I started studying it. And I get to verse 18. It says, 
Now the sons of Noah who went out of the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And Ham was the father of Canaan. And I'm thinking, well, that was random. Why why'd you tell me about Canaan? You know, they all had sons. Why pop Canaan there real quick? And I'm thinking, that's interesting. I wonder what that's all about. And then you keep reading. And when Ham comes on the scene in verse 22, it says, And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father. And I'm thinking... What's this? You know, what is this occurrence? Why are we getting told about Canaan here? What's up, what's up with this occurrence of Canaan? And then you get to verse twenty four and twenty five, and and you know, lo and behold, Noah stands up to curse, and you think he's going to curse Ham, and he says, "Curse be Canaan." And you think, what in the world? Why did he curse? Why did Papa curse him? You know. Do you understand that what's interesting about this? These are interesting details. You need to answer these questions. You need to answer to me why. Why is it like this? And then you get to verse 26 and 27. And to about Shem and Japheth, he says, Canaan shall be his servant. Both of them. That's how he ends their prophecy. Canaan shall be his servant. You're thinking, what is with this emphasis of Canaan? And I'm telling you, we're going to look at it in a minute. So leave it right there. We're going to look at it in a minute. But the only way that can be answered is by you keep reading, you just keep reading into the Bible and you're looking into the future. And as you gaze into the future by reading the Bible, you see the answer. It's being fulfilled. Therefore, these words of Noah are prophetic in nature. Let me let me give you uh, actually let me give you the other interesting detail. I almost forgot. Here's another interesting detail. Other than the emphasis on Cain, I want you to see this 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 special blessing on Shem. Okay, look look at verse twenty six. And he said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and may Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth, and may he dwell in the tents of Shem. Now that's interesting because Shem and Japheth did the same thing. They had the same virtuous act. So why is Shem singled out here? If you really, if you read it and, and, and uh, you really stick tight to the details, Japheth is never actually officially blessed here. It does say, Blessed be Japheth. It says, Blessed is the God of Shem. And he zeroed in on. And even when Japheth gets his blessing, it's that he would dwell in the tents of Shem. What kind of blessing is that? You're going to dwell in the tents of Shem. So why this emphasis on Shem? Why? Why does he seem to get this special blessing? That's just an interesting detail, right? What is that all about? And I'm telling you, the only way you can answer that, and we're going to answer it in a minute, but the only way you can answer that is by gazing into the future as you keep reading in the Bible and you see those words fulfilled. Therefore, these words are prophetic in nature, okay? So the interesting details help us to see that Noah's words are prophetic in nature. Now, another place I think helps you with this. There are other places in the Bible where this kind of pattern is used, okay? This whole pattern of using, using natural events. you got these natural events happening in the life of Noah and his three sons and the cursing and the blessing. Just natural events. Well, there's a pattern in the Bible of God using natural events like that to elicit prophetic words. Let me give you an example of that. Two quick examples, just so you know what I'm saying. John chapter 11. Listen to this. John chapter 11. And this is verse 49. And one of them, Caiaphas... Being high priest that year. Now, you remember Caiaphas was a wicked man that hated Jesus. He's a wicked man that hated Jesus. Caiaphas. Being high priest that year, he said to them, You know nothing at all. 
nor do you consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people and not the whole nation, and not that the whole nation should perish. And you're thinking, why did he say that? And then it explains it. Now this he did not say on his own authority. But being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not for that nation only, but also that He would gather together in one, the children of God who were scattered abroad. You're thinking, why in the world did Caiaphas, the wicked man that hates God, why did he say that? And so the picture here is that God can use, He does this, using natural events to elicit prophetic words throughout the Bible. Let me give you another example that's even closer to home. Genesis 49. It's closer to our home base in Genesis 9. Genesis 49. Genesis 49. Look at, look at this. So this is where Jacob is about to bless. He's about to give these you know, prophetic words to his 12 sons. So he's about to give kind of final words to his 12 sons. And if you read it, you know, you read the first, first in verse 3. It says, Reuben, you were my firstborn. He begins talking to Reuben. And listen, it doesn't go well for Reuben. It doesn't go well for him. And he mentions things that Reuben had done. He's using natural events. Things that Reuben had done in the past that were sinful to give these words to Reuben that end up affecting his whole lineage. Now, now listen, you get to verse 5. Simon and Levi are brothers. Instruments of cruelty are in their dwelling place. Let not my soul enter into their counsel. Let not my honor be united to their assembly. For in their anger... They slew a man. And in their self-will, they hamstrung an ox. Cursed be their anger. So it ain't going well for these sons either. And you see how it's rooted in these natural events, and yet it's these things that are going to affect their whole lineage. You see that? And here's where it really gets plain and clear. Verse 8. Judah. And man, Judah is sweating. Judah's thinking, if you read the story, Judah was more wicked than all of them. And Judah's sweating it out, going, man, Reuben has been... He, it didn't go well for Reuben. It didn't go well for Simeon and Levi. I'm about to get the hammer dropped. This is not going to be good. And then what does he say to Judah? Judah, you are he whom your brothers shall praise. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's children shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's whip. Go, go to verse 10. The scepter, that means a king. A king. Imagine what he's thinking. He's just a... He, you know, he's got his... You know, grandpa and, and dad and other children. He's just a family. And this, and this is talking about a scepter? A king? Where does the king come out of this thing? It's a prophecy. Look into the future. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet. And we could go on and on. The point is, he's using these natural events and it comes to Judah. And because the Christ is coming through Judah, this is the word that he receives. Okay? So what I want you to see in this is in Noah's story. So you can go back to Genesis 9. It's a pattern through the Bible. This happens that natural events like what's going on with Noah and his sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, it's, it's a pattern that these natural events will be used. But what they're couching, what they want to couch for you so you to see, for you to see it is these prophetic words that reach into the future and affect us all. This is what's going on here, okay? Alright. So, you can, all this stuff you got hanging, we about to start letting it out. You ready? Start bringing it back. You got them ready? What are we supposed to learn then? What are we meant to learn then from Noah's prophetic words that reach into the future and affect us all? And I want to start off answering that question 
by following the prophetic words. You got, you got words given to Canaan about Canaan, about Shem, and about Japheth in, in Genesis 9. I want to start off by following the prophetic words to Canaan and Shem throughout the Bible. In other words, we're going to look into the future. Okay? From the standpoint of Genesis 9, we're going to look into the future and follow out and trace it out. We're going to do a helicopter tour through the Bible, so stick with me. I want you to see the big picture about what's going on as we trace out this Shem and Canaan's prophecies as they get traced out throughout the rest of the Bible. Okay? So, when you come, so I want you to think about it. When you come to those prophetic words to Canaan and Shem in Genesis 9, there's already some things going on in your mind. If you're reading the Bible and you're understanding the book of Genesis, there's already some stuff happening in your mind. And here's, here's a big deal. We've talked about this many, many times. That you already know from Genesis 3.15, just a few verses after sin enters into the world, that God says there's coming one through the lineage of Eve, through the seed of the, what's called the, he's called the seed of the woman, that's going to crush Satan's head. He's coming. And so you're already, if you're reading Genesis right, you've already got that on your mind. You're thinking about the seed of the woman who's coming. And you know when you get to Genesis 6, 8, and it says, all the world is going to be destroyed, but Noah found grace in his sight. And you know, you know up to this point that that's about the seed of the woman. That He's coming, and He's coming through Noah, and Noah gets preserved because the one that's going to crush Satan's head is coming through Noah. So you already know this, right? And so you're sitting there and you see Noah's three sons and you're thinking to yourself, which son is he coming through? The seed of the woman is coming through which one of these sons? And you're already thinking about that. In Genesis chapter 9, our section today reveals to us that the promised one is coming through Shem. This is the reason he gets the emphasis. This is the reason the emphasis of the blessing lands on him. This is the reason it says the Jephites are going to dwell in his tent. Because it lands on him. We know, or at least we have clues, that the Christ, the promised one, the one that's going to crush Satan's head, is coming through Shem. And so we leave Genesis chapter 9. We're about to leave it. And we've got Shem blessed and Canaan is cursed. Canaan is cursed. And so then we get into Genesis chapter 10, the next chapter. Genesis chapter 10. And we realize that the, the lineage of Shem, the Shemites, those blessed Shemites, we're going to see in chapter 10, are the Hebrews. We've already mentioned that. So bring that, pull that back in. The, those men from Hebrew, the Hebrews. We know that that blessed line, the blessed Shemites, are the Hebrews according to Genesis chapter 10. And we know that the cursed Canaanites from Genesis chapter 10, are the ones that those Hebrews in the future are going to conquer. Going to take over their land. The borders of their land is given. So you've got the land of Canaan and the, the, the blessed Shemites are going to come take over that land of the cursed Canaan into the future. We see that in Genesis chapter 10. Then we get into Genesis chapter 11. And beginning in verse 10, if you just kind of glance at it, this is the genealogy of Shem. We get a repeat of the genealogy of Shem. And now we get it in a seed of the woman fashion. In other words, the same way the seed of the woman was traced out in Genesis 5. Do you remember that pattern? That was a very specific pattern. That same pattern gets picked up back here in Genesis 11. And it's confirmed even more so to us that the Christ, the promised one from Genesis 3.15, is coming through Shem. We know that from this passage of Scripture, okay? And this genealogy in Genesis 11, it ends with Abraham. Abraham. 
And then we get into Genesis chapter 12. And what we're going to see in Genesis chapter 12 is we're going to see a promise to the blessed Shemite named Abraham. We're going to see a promise given to the blessed Shemite named Abraham that his descendants are going to take over the land of Canaan. Are you seeing the fulfillment of these words? Are you seeing the fulfillment of Noah's words? Listen to Genesis 12 verse 1. We're going to read down a little ways. Now the Lord had said to Abram, Remember, he's the Shemite. He's from the lineage of Shem. Get out of your country, from your family, and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and I will curse him who curses you. In you and in, the, in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So we know through this Shemite, through Abraham, is coming the one that's going to bless all nations. The same one that's going to crush Satan's head. Verse 4. So Abram departed as the Lord had spoken to him and Lot went with him. And Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Then Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had, that they had gathered, and the people whom they had acquired in Haran, and they departed to go where? To the land of Canaan. And so we start getting tidbits of Noah's words being fulfilled as the Shemites are the blessed ones and the Canaanites are the cursed ones. They're going to go into the land of Canaan. Verse 6, Abram passed through the land to the place of Shechem as far as the terebinth tree of Morah and the Canaanites were then in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram, and this is a big deal, the Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your descendants... Shemite, Abraham, Abram, to your descendants, I will give this land. What land? The land of Canaan. So here's His promise. You see this connecting as the story flows that Noah has said these prophetic words and we're beginning to see more things that help us to know what they even mean. Okay? So here you have this promise of the coming one and you've got this promise that the Shemites are going to take over the land of Canaan. Now, the, the, the prophetic words that Canaan will serve Shem, that Canaan will be a servant to Shem, from, that Noah said, it's not going to be initially fulfilled. Why? Why will it not be initially fulfilled? Go to Genesis 15. In Genesis chapter 15, we're going to see the reason that Canaan is not going to be immediately taken over by the Shemites. We're going to see it. Verse 12. Now when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram. And behold, a horror and great darkness fell on him. And he said to Abram, Know certainly. So listen to God's word to that Shemite, Abraham. Know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs and will serve them and they will afflict them 400 years. He's speaking about the Israelites, Abraham's family being taken into Egypt. And they'll be enslaved there for 400 years. Verse 14. And also the nation whom they serve, I will judge. Afterward they shall come out with great possessions. So after 400 years, the Shemites are going to come out. Now as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace and, and shall be buried at a good old age. But in the fourth generation, they shall return here. 
God tells Abraham, your descendants are coming back to the land of Canaan in four generations. And listen to it. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Amorites is another way of saying the Canaanites. This Amorites came from the Canaanites if you read the genealogies in Genesis 10. So why? Why is this not going to be, why are the prophetic words of Noah not going to be initially fulfilled? Because the iniquity of those Amorites, the iniquity of those Canaanites is not yet to the top. It's not where it's going to be before He rains down. So what we see is God is going to do what He's going to do where the Shemites, the Israelites, are going to take over this land of Canaan. He's going to do what He's going to do because of the sin of those people and because of His plan that He has to bring about this Christ. Okay, we see that in this verse. Now before Abraham dies, we're going to see the promise reaffirmed. Go to Genesis 17. I want you to see this flow. Stay with me. Before Abraham dies, we're going to see this promise reaffirmed. Look at verse 7 and 8. God looks at Abraham again. And He says, I will establish My covenant between Me and you and your descendants after you in their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and your descendants after you. Also, listen, I give to you and your descendants after you the land in which you are a stranger. All the land of Canaan. You see this emphasis coming through Genesis? As an everlasting possession. And I will be their God. So you get this promise reaffirmed. So what's with this land? That, that the Shemites are going to take this land. Those that come through the lineage, the Hebrews are coming through the lineage of Shem, are going to take this land according to Noah's words and according to more promises as we go along. What's with this land? Listen, this is where everything is going to go down. This is where in this land, the land of Canaan, is called the promised land, is where the seed of the woman is going to be preserved, the Christ. This land is where the temple will be built that points to Christ. This is where the law will be reserved that points to Christ. This is where the prophets will preach about the coming Christ. This is where the priesthood will function that points to the Lord Jesus Christ, the seed of the woman. This is where the sacrifices will be made. This is where the feast will be performed. And all of it pointing ahead to the seed of the woman, the Christ that is to come. And this land is where Christ Himself will come as the Savior. And so this everything is going to go down in this place. So what we have at the end of Genesis, and we're going to make some bigger leaps here. At the end of Genesis, we're going to see the Shemite people that are promised this land because the iniquity of those Canaanites is not fulfilled yet. They're going to leave the land of Canaan and go into Egypt for 400 years. And so when we get to Exodus chapter 1, that's exactly what we have. We've got 400 years has gone by. They have become slaves in Egypt as you read Exodus chapter 1. So it seems like Noah's prophecy has been reversed. You've got Canaan, the Canaanites over there prospering as a mighty nation in the land of Canaan. And you've got those from Shem, the Hebrews, as slaves in Egypt. It seems like Noah's words have been reversed, but that's not going to last very long. Because look at Exodus chapter 6. It's not going to last long. Listen to Exodus chapter 6. We'll start in verse 2. And read a little chunk here. Exodus chapter 6, verse 2. And God spoke to Moses. So this is 400 years later. Now that, that family of Abraham, the Shemites that went into Egypt, have now they have multiplied and become a nation of people. That's why they enslaved them. And now these people, 
Verse 2, And God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, Lord, I was not known to them. I have also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan. God's reminding him, I promise to give them the land of Canaan. The land of their pilgrimage in which they were strangers. And I have also heard the groaning of the children of Israel whom the Egyptians keep in bondage. And I have remembered my covenant. You could keep reading that. That God tells them, I'm about to pull you out of this place and you're going to go take the land of Canaan. It's about to go down. Those words of Noah are about to be further fulfilled as I bring you out of Egypt and take you into the land of Canaan. And so as you keep reading through the Bible, you get to Numbers chapter 13. And the, those, those Shemites, man, they are right there on the edge. They're about to enter into the land of Canaan and take it over. And if you read Numbers 13 verse 1, I want you to hear this. Numbers 13 verse 1, listen to it. Numbers 13 1. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Send men to spy out the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the children of of Israel. So it says, send those men to go spy it out. And you think about those men looking into the land of Canaan at a mighty nation that had been prospering, but a land which God had promised to them. And they're about to enter in and take it over. But then they have to wander in the wilderness for 40 years because they did not trust God that that was their land. They didn't trust Him. Oh, that they would have remembered the words of Noah. If they would just remember and put their faith in the words of Noah, Noah said, Shem, you are blessed and Canaan shall be your servant. If they just would have put their hope in God. Or if they remember the promise of God to Abraham when He said, Abraham, I'm going to give you this land. And yet they didn't do that. And this is what trusting God looks like, right? This is, this is trusting God. We take God at His Word, and it doesn't matter what it looks like around us, the giants, the Canaanites, it does not matter. God has said it in His Word, and we trust Him. We trust Him. We trust Him. This is what it looks like to walk in faith. So they can't, they can't go in there. So a generation goes by. Forty years wandering in the wilderness goes by. And at the end of Deuteronomy, here's how Deuteronomy ends. Forty years later, Moses is up on a mountain. And he's looking out over the land of Canaan that Joshua is about to lead them in to take. And this is the promise. Deuteronomy 34. This is the promise that's on Moses' mind as he looks out at the land of Canaan. Deuteronomy 34 verse 4. Then the Lord said to him, This is the land of which I swore to give Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, I will give it to your descendants. I have caused you to see it with your eyes, but you shall not cross over there. So this is how Deuteronomy ends, is he's seeing it. And then the book of Joshua is going to come in, and Joshua and his people, in miraculous fashion, are going to come in, and they're going to begin to take over in fulfillment of Noah's prophecy, to take over this land. And they do it with promises. Just, just, just listen to Deuteronomy 9 for a second. They do it with promises like this on their mind. Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 1. Hear, O Israel! You are, you are to cross over the Jordan today and go in to dispossess nations greater and mightier than yourself, cities great and fortified up to the heavens, a people great and tall, the descendants of the Anakim whom you know and of whom you have heard it said, who can stand before the descendants of Anak? 
Therefore, understand today that the Lord your God is He who goes before you as a consuming fire. He's saying, I'm going before you to take that land. He will destroy them and bring them down before you so you shall drive them out and destroy them quickly as the Lord has said to you. He warns them, do not think in your heart after the Lord your God has cast them out before you saying, because of my righteousness, the Lord has brought me in to dispossess this land. But it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out before you. And He reminds them of this again and again. That it's not because of your righteousness that I'm giving this to you. This is because of their wickedness. And I have a plan to bring about the Christ. And it's all going to go down in this land. Okay, This is the picture that they walk into in the book of Joshua. Now, in this land, as they take over in the book of Joshua, and you see that keep happening, the Shemites begin to dwell there. And they dwell there in that land until that promised one comes. They dwell in that land. I'm just fast forward in the Bible, into the, into the future. They dwell in that land until that great Shemite of them all comes. And this is fulfilled in the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. When Jesus Himself, the great Shemite, comes into the land. Don't you understand? Why, why is it? Whenever He was born, why does it say in the Gospel of Luke that the angels go ballistic at the coming of the Christ? I mean, literally, it's like they see Him born and they say, we got to tell somebody there's some shepherds right there. Hallelujah! Look what has happened. A Savior has been born this day in Bethlehem. Why are they going ballistic? Because all of history has been summed up in this Christ who is coming. All of history is being summed up in Jesus is born. He came into the land. That great Shemite came in to the land of Canaan, which is conquered. This is, I want to read something to you in Luke chapter 2. You can flip with me there. Luke 2. A lot of turning today. Luke chapter 2. Simeon. You understand why the angels are going ballistic? What about Simeon? What's he so excited about? I want you to see this. Luke chapter 2, verse 25. After Christ was born, the seed of the woman was born. Verse 25. And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was just, just and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had, listen, catch this. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. What do you think that did to him? The dude is invincible until he sees the Savior. He's invincible until the seed of the woman comes. And so he knows, he gets revealed to him that he's going to get to see the one to which all history concludes. He's going to get to see the Christ. He's going to get to see the one, that great Shemite. And look at verse 27. So he came by the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms. What are his parents thinking? He just takes him up in his arms right there. Think of the excitement of this man that gets to see him. He takes him up in his arms and he blesses God. He begins to worship God. He begins to praise the living God saying, Lord, now you're letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation. He said, I can go ahead and die now. I've seen him. 
I've seen the one that all history concludes into. Verse 31. Which you have prepared. My eyes have seen your salvation. Which you have prepared before the face of all peoples. A light to bring revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. So here's where I just want to conclude on that thought. Think of what this means. Noah gives this prophecy and it's all pointing forward to, to Shem who is blessed and through his lineage is coming the Christ. It's the main point of it. And these people, the angels go ballistic, Simeon goes ballistic. They are worshiping God for what He's done in Christ. Let us be a church that does the same. That we would be a church. This is a call to us all, right? That we would be a church that ultimately in everything we worship the living, risen Christ and Savior, Jesus. Let's go after that. What about Japheth? I left him behind. Go back to Genesis 9. What about Japheth? The last thing I want to say to you here. So what about Japheth? Uh, what does his part of the prophetic words from Noah, what does it mean? What's it all about? Look at verse 27. May God enlarge Japheth and may he dwell in the tents of Shem. And may Canaan be his servant. So Japheth. You remember, you remember the Japhethites from Genesis chapter 10? Remember how it said that these people were the representation of the nation, the Gentiles? Listen to 10.5. From these, the Japhethites, from these, the coastland peoples. That's what Isaiah called those nations. The peoples, the people groups. The nations, from these the coastland peoples of the Gentiles were separated into their lands. Everyone according to his language, according to their families, and into their nations. In Noah's prophecy, these Japhethites, they represent for us the nations, the Gentiles. So you got the Hebrews through which came the Christ, and you got the Gentiles. And every nation, tribe, and tongue is what Japheth represents for us. Now what does it mean that he, Japheth, will dwell in the tents of Shem? What does that mean? He will dwell in the tents of Shem. It's obviously not literal, right? It's not saying that literally that the tribe of Japheth is going to dwell and be with in the same place, same location as Shem. It's not what it's saying. What he's saying here is the Japhethites are going to partake of the blessings of Shem. Blessed be the God of Shem and Japheth and the Japhethites, the lineage, are going to partake of that blessing. This, this promise or this prophecy is equal to the promise in Genesis 12.3. When he looks at a Shemite Abraham and says, In you, Abraham, all the nations, which Japheth represents for us, all the nations are going to be blessed through you, Abraham, because through you is coming the great Shemite called Christ. All the nations represented in Japheth here. Okay, Now, how is this encouraging to us? How should this be an encouragement to us? Church of Jesus Christ, we are all Japhethites dwelling in the tents of Sham. That's what we are. And so this should be encouraging to us that it has never, ever, ever been God's plan to only bless one people, but through Shem and through Christ to bless all nations, every nation, tribe, and tongue through which He will redeem a people. This has always been God's plan. Always. Always been God's plan. And this should be an encouragement to us. We are all Japhethites dwelling in the tent of that great Shemite named Jesus. Every one of us who are Saved in Christ Jesus, a part of His church. 
So that's how it's encouraging to us, but how is it challenging to us? And this is where I want to close out. How is this a challenge to us? This is a challenge for all of us, and I want you to apply this to yourself. For every single one of us to have an all-nations heart like our God. What God promises to Japheth and the way it gets fulfilled throughout history, throughout the, the future as we see through the Bible should encourage every single one of us and challenge every single one of us to have an all-nations heart like our God has, okay? I want you to think about this. There was a time in my life where I thought that God had a plan for one nation and it failed. And so in Matthew 28, He opens it up to us all. And He says, go make disciples of all the nations. There was a time when I thought that way. And then I read my Bible. And I read the prophets of old. And the prophets, they spoke about there's one coming, that servant of the king that's going to bless all nations. Or that one that's going to, he's going to come and he'll be salvation not just to the Jews, but to all, all the Gentiles as well. And I saw that in the prophets, okay, this is not a new thing in Matthew chapter 28 in the Great Commission. It's not a new thing. And a little bit more time goes by and I see it way back in Genesis chapter 12. Whoa! You mean God promised it way back to Abraham? That Abraham in your seed, all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. All nations were on your heart. And Abraham? And now he pulls me back even further to Genesis chapter 9. And I'm thinking, man, this has been on the heart of God since before time began. You can really take it back to before time began. That this has been on the heart of God. Every nation, tribe, and tongue. So we want to be a church. So church, let me call you into this. Let me remind you of something that we've said and we've tried to lay foundations for again and again and again. We want to have an all-nations heart. All-nation church of God that says we want to make disciples of all the nations like Jesus said because He is worthy of worship from every nation, tribe, and tongue. All authority in heaven's earth, it's been given to Him, right? We read in Revelation chapter 5. And you read in Revelation and it says, no one's found worthy to open the scroll. And that scroll has all of history written in it as you read throughout, throughout the book of Revelation. It says, no one's found worthy to open it. And then here comes the Christ, the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. And He comes and He opens and He holds all of history in His hand. And when John turns to look at Him, He says He sees a lamb as though it had been slain. He was crucified for sinners so that He could purchase people from every nation, tribe, and tongue on this earth. And just a few verses later, and they sang a new song. You, God, are worthy because you've, you've taken the scroll and opened its seals and you have redeemed us by your blood from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And we want to be a church that's all about that. That we pour ourselves out for that. That we have that heart and we carry on the responsibility through our going, through our giving, through our challenging and pushing and encouraging of each other that we want to take this gospel to every people group on this earth that does not have it. And I think we should be encouraged in that as we read this passage of Scripture. Let's be poured out for those things. Amen? Everybody with that? That's all I got. Let's pray. Father, thank You so much for Your Word. And I pray those two things, God, that You would make us a people that worship You. God, we worship You that all of history, all of history summed up in You. From the very beginning, it's always been about You, Lord Jesus. And in the prophecy of Noah, it was all about You, Lord Jesus. 
And so we worship You and make us a people that never get tired because of our wickedness and sinfulness. Never grow numb to giving You praise and worship from our hearts. God, make us a people that worships You. Make us a people that worships You, Lord. God, I pray that You would get so much worship out of this church. Lord, whatever it is that's blocking it, even this day, even in this next song, whatever it is that blocks it in this church, God, I pray that You would deal with it. You are the great shepherd of the sheep. And You're able to, to raise up a people that are white hot, burning with passion and worship for You. God, do that with us, please. Do that with us, Lord. And God, I pray... God, I thank You that, that you have that we dwell in the tents of shame. Thank You, Lord. Thank You for saving our souls. And I pray, God, please, make us a church that lifts up our eyes and looks out to all nations of the earth, God, and You, by Your power, would use a... God, use a weak group like us. You would get all the glory and praise if You used a weak group like us to take Your Gospel to all nations, to have an all-nations impact on this world. Thank you, Lord, for your help. In Jesus' name, amen.